everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Relating to DevSecOps, where we explore the development, security, and operational issues of today with representation from all of the parties involved so that we can solve some problems we all face in the real world. On this podcast, we will debate, challenge each other, and maybe clear some air between different departments at a variety of organizations. I'm your host, Ken Toller. And I'm an application security consultant focused in all things application and cloud security. And I spend a lot of time talking with clients and colleagues about everyone's favorite buzzword, DevSecOps. And I'm joined today by my first of two hopefully recurring co-hosts, Jameson Colburn from the DevOps side of the house. And then in our second episode, we'll be adding Simon Dolo, who will bring in the product engineering expertise and hold down the fort for all of the developers out there. And then moving forward, we'll, we'll address all those topics together and uh, see if we can make something out of this. All right. So before we get started, and since this is the first episode, I just want to talk a little bit about the inspiration here. Now, I've known uh, Jameson and Simon for a really long time. We've worked together for a long time and worked on a lot of different projects together. And after talking over some beers and chatting on Slack, we sort of had this realization that while there's a lot of software development, security, DevOps, DevSecOps podcasts out there, it doesn't seem like there is this one place you can go to get different perspectives from all of the different parties involved in a problem. And so our hope is that by bringing representation from all of these different professions and careers and even areas of expertise, that we can take a few steps um, forward and a few steps out of our respective echo chambers and address some of these issues, annoyances, and problems with each other maybe talk about it in a collaborative way so that we can all move forward. So really, this is for folks that want to improve those cross-functional relationships, maybe join in solidarity with the problems that we all face and occasionally take jabs at one another inside of this public arena. So um, with that, let's jump right in and introduce Jameson. So Jameson Colburn, um, welcome to the podcast. Welcome as a co-host. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? and uh, address the audience here and tell us like what got you into DevSecOps, why you're on the podcast. Uh, yeah, over to you. So my name is Jameson Colburn. I'm a lead DevOps engineer. Uh, you know, I focus mostly on things like infrastructure as code, uh, build pipelines, automation pipelines, um, getting applications into production, as well as the wonderful operation side of life with troubleshooting and fixing production issues as they arise and, and keeping everything moving and keeping code uh, delivering to prod and keeping systems stable. Uh, so uh, I, I feel like I've been doing DevOps for most of my career. I'd started uh, writing automation uh, in Perl and, and other languages like expect. Uh, and then since, you know, obviously the industry has trended away from these things and has moved towards frameworks like Ansible and Terraform and, and other other things like that. So um, I won't say how long I've been doing this, uh, but it feels <laughs> like it's been a long time, feels like it's been forever, but yeah, that's that's kind of my background um, and and you know a lot of what I do day to day still um, now. Man, Perl makes me cringe, so. <laughs> Dude, it's embarrassing uh, to think that I ever wrote Perl. Yeah. Well, um, so the title of this, uh, this podcast and this, this episode is what is DevSecOps? And you mentioned sort of how you got into DevSecOps. So tell us a little bit about what that actually means to you 
even though you know we i think you and i have have this this common joke that DevSecOps is this buzzword that no one can really define. So what I want to address is what that means to you or what you think the spirit of it is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it definitely is a buzzword similar to how DevOps has been a buzzword for a number of years now, right? And so with that, I mean, what DevSecOps means to me uh, feels like a little bit of a loaded question. I, I think you know my answer here, but uh, really DevSecOps is, is to, from my perspective, is taking a lot of what you saw with DevOps with, you know, codifying uh, build pipelines and, and migrating to things like infrastructure as code, where you, you take your SDLC processes and you apply them to something historically that is a little bit more archaic, uh, like like running infrastructure, for instance, right? And, and taking uh, an approach of... Uh, of managing those things it, similar to how you would any application project, right? And, and so DevSecOps kind of feels like a similar thing where we're, we're getting security into that that build pipeline, into that delivery pipeline, right? And following a similar process of promoting security controls like you would any other um, change and, and give really understanding, getting, getting developers to understand uh, security, right? Similar to how we have educated developers on infrastructure and, and other things in, in recent years, right? And, and making sure that folks are more aware of what's going on and taking security kind of out of this black box and more into uh, the day-to-day uh, life of developers. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, and I guess we can get into my definition a little bit later, but just to dig into some of what you talked about, you were saying bringing security into these into this SDLC process and going through that. How do you how do you think about that when you're talking about bringing security into the CI/CD process? Is that uh, a tooling discussion? Is that something that you're bringing some sort of uh, existing process into the CI/CD pipeline typically? Uh, I, I think from my perspective, and I know this is, <laughs> this is a place where we're probably going to disagree a little bit, but a big part of it is really putting the, uh, the tooling in place, right? And getting that getting that in, in a position where it is surface to developers in something that they're already familiar with, like a build pipeline, right? And so getting that getting that security scan, getting those metrics, getting whatever it is, right, show surfaced and demonstrated in a in a pipeline and, and following those similar sort of conventions like pull requests and you know enriching pull requests with that type of data is is something that you know developers are already familiar with. And so exposing security um, security awareness in a similar fashion is something uh, that definitely makes makes sense. It kind of helps to drive that point home. You know, so you already have things um, you know in your pipeline like code coverage, right? And so a security scan in some ways is very is a very similar type of report, right? It's another XML document that is generated as a result of tests being run. And while the output in the meeting of those tests is slightly different, it is something that folks are already familiar with and, and are already reacting to in a lot of cases. Got it. Yeah, and we, we can dig into that a, a little bit, but I think it's it's a good segue into what how I view DevSecOps. Many people focus on the security in the existing pipeline aspect of DevSecOps or address the the tooling aspect of it. How do we bring what we have today from a security perspective into 
the DevOps world. And I think that's a very valid definition. To me, DevSecOps is, is this podcast, right? It is how we communicate with the development and operations folks, the DevOps folks, the developers to bring security to that SDLC process into that pipeline. And from my perspective, it is really more about that cultivating that relationship than it is a, about the the tooling that you use or the techniques that you use. I think that those almost come secondary and lead into what you're talking about, really taking these these this tooling and adapting it to a DevOps process or pushing it into a DevOps process. So you talked about writing tests or you already have the this testing framework that you're using. And if we look at it from the traditional sense of security to say, well, you know, we have to get security testing into the DevOps process. So let's take our existing DAST or SAS mechanism and shove it into a CI CD pipeline. If we remove that um, relationship aspect of it, then we lose the ability to say, well, maybe security should be writing that test with uh, a test engineer, or maybe security should be writing that playbook like you talked about, or that Perl script, <laughs> if, if we're still <laughs> back in that, in that world, that will launch the security process into the, into the CICD pipeline. So that, that's where I'm at with the, the people aspect of it. I think that you have to solve that relationship problem first, which is why you know, we're here. And I think that we need to expose more of the relationship aspect of that and bring in more, more players. If it's, if right now you and I are talking a DevOps engineer to a security practitioner, but maybe we need to bring in more folks, developers, project managers, um, you know, change management, help desk, whatever it might be to, to make something like DevSecOps work. And you'll see that that these definitions are coming out of it, you know, new new buzzwords, DevSec, BizOps, or whatever it might be. Yeah, definitely have not heard DevSec, uh, SecOps, Biz, whatever you just said. Uh, <laughs> that is a new one for me, and uh, I wouldn't even know how to begin to define that. But I definitely agree, right, is that you could have the, the best tooling, the best, proce uh, best processes in, on, on paper, right? But at the end of the day, if there's not that relationship, if there's not a shared context that folks are working off of, it, it's probably going to fall flat. You, you're not going to have uh, the buy-in or the collaboration that is necessary to make this work if, if you know folks are just kind of, if you're shoehorning it in. So it's definitely a very valid point that the the people come first, the relationships come first, and and the processes and the tooling is is much is, is more or less second to that, right? You need to have you need to have all that in place. Otherwise, you're just going to have a lot of blinking lights and red, you know, poles <laughs> when uh, when folks go through their build process, but no one's going to react to that. So it's definitely a valid um, point. Yeah, the the biz piece of it is is like bringing in. Uh, the business operations component of it to try and influence the 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 pipeline. So it's just it, is there a business consideration maybe to reporting or compliance or regulation or something along those lines that needs to be considered or activated inside of a CI/CD pipeline? Where I think that is going is is in 
maybe something along the lines of inventory management or classification. You and I have talked at length about tagging strategies and things of that nature. So maybe something there or reporting structures, not reporting structures like HR, but how we generate reports and what they look like and how they're delivered, things of that nature. Uh, so one, one of the things I do want to jump into is that is a little bit of that tooling aspect. I, it's a, even though I, I do think that it comes secondary to the, the people component, I do want to address how, do you, how you see successful implementations of, of security inside of your DevOps pipeline or, or areas that you, you think are you know, ripe for improvement. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of it really comes from uh, adoption and, and kind of having those boots on the ground of people that are security conscious, maybe it, it doesn't necessarily have to be security, nor maybe should it really even be. Uh, it has to be slightly, maybe slightly more organic than that, right? Where you have to have folks that are bought in that there is value and they can't necessarily be management folks because right. that's not really, that that may help drive it initially, but that's not going to sustain it. You need you need folks that are bought in on the ideas and the value that they provide, not only to the business, but also to everyone involved to really get that successful adoption and, and kind of sustained adoption. I mean, it's one thing to do something once, right? But it's more of uh, keeping that going and, and keeping folks having that awareness. Uh, it, it is really important. So, I mean, where I've seen it most successful is is kind of, you know, what we're doing here, right? We're security partners with DevOps, partners with Dev, partners with whomever, uh, really, and, and just getting getting those folks working together, getting those folks, I mean, frankly, even just talking, right? Getting some folks that maybe might not necessarily uh, spend as much time together or have as much day-to-day uh, -to -day interaction and, and having them work together to start to build that shared context, but also start uh, start to articulate that value to other folks within those you know given organizations. So it, I mean, it's it's probably pretty cheesy to say, but that, I mean, that's frankly the the only way that most of this will ever be successful is with folks, uh, you know, folks being really bought in from the start, right? And and having those folks that aren't um, aren't enforcing it as much as championing it. And, and I know a lot of cases you talk about this where you need to have that security champion, and and a lot of that may be with a some milestone project or some you know, first project that really gets the thing, the ball rolling, but having that, having that collaboration is, is really important. And so I, but it, it's largely, it's an education thing, right? It's getting folks to understand the value that security is not just there because they, they, they want to be, I mean, I, I hope they want to be, but it's more of just that <laughs> folks really need to be, uh, need to under, kind of have that understanding of what security is trying to do and then start to drive that value back. Uh, so at the end of the day, I think that that's kind of the important thing uh, there is, is really having that, uh, having that uh, collaboration. Yeah, I, I totally agree. In fact, there are, I guess, um, areas where, or not areas, but clients and, um, and organizations where we will implement a security champion program which is designed around identifying talent across the organization to try and cultivate 
some sort of security knowledge within an, within an organization, but that's not always successful. And the reason, so I, it is important to have that tie in to each of these teams. But the reason that may not be scalable is because you don't necessarily have that many people that are interested in focusing on security. And if they have those, um, if they have that mentality that, oh, I want to be on the security team, then that's great. We can pull them over on the security team and use them. Or if they are primarily a developer, or primarily a DevOps engineer, really the security component of it become secondary. So without that true collaboration of we're all on the same page, it really falls flat on its face. Uh, what I will ask you is when someone, a security engineer or a security practitioner is attempting to collaborate with you, how do you prefer to receive that input? And just to, to clarify there, we talked about security engineers writing their own tests or security uh, or DevOps engineers maybe contributing to security in some way. How do you how do you want to receive that, especially in infrastructure as code or writing your Perl scripts? Would you would you <laughs> encourage would you encourage a uh, a security engineer to write a like a pull request for you or or how do you want to receive that? A change ticket? What's your preferred method? Yeah, never gonna live down Perl, so probably should have never mentioned it, but it's fine. Uh, your mistake. So yeah, my mistake. I I haven't adopted the or drank the Go Kool Aid yet, but I don't write things with Perl anymore. In, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, <laughs> I've, I've I've migrated to Python, which might just be the modern day Perl. So with that, <laughs> uh, my my I'm a big fan of hands on engineers, whether it be security, architecture, really like in any facet of an organization. I like people that can do, uh, and I like people that can articulate what they do, right? So with that, uh, my my way, my favorite way to collaborate with people is really pull requests. Uh, there's no, in some ways, there's no better way. It shows exactly what someone is trying to do. And while there's not always, you can't necessarily articulate everything in code, I think a combination of code and some some conversation can basically surface exactly what someone was trying to do or what they're attempting to do. And even if it falls flat on its face, even if it's like somebody's first try at Ansible or Terraform or Chef or whatever you have, uh, it, it really is, it, it's a tool, a good tool for education where somebody, uh, even if they don't, weren't necessarily sure what they were doing, you can comment on specific lines. You can give very targeted feedback. Uh, and my, I, I've, my thing with pull requests is I, I tell folks this all the time is that you need to be very honest. There's no like saving folks feelings on pull requests. So <laughs> with that, it, it, I mean, don't be, don't be a jerk, but at the same time, don't sugarcoat things because the idea of the pull request is like, if you're approving that, it's you saying that you agree with what this person is doing. Right. And I get it. It doesn't have to be as, as hard line as that, but at the same time, the goal is, you know, the end goal is really to get everybody get get the best possible product, right, or best possible outcome. So, as I said, it, it, that's really kind of my preferred way of of collaborating with people. Uh, is it, really is really through pull requests or through code because it, at that point we're we're all in this in together, right? We're all trying to accomplish uh, similar goals. They may not always be the same, but it's the same surface level goals, and, and so. With that, like I, I like to say, I work in the open, right? So I have, you know, all my repos are public, and folks can are free to look at and 
you know, pull requests. Public internally, public not necessarily internally. public <laughs> to the world. For um, all of those security folks listening right now looking for Jameson Colburn's GitHub repository. Yeah, there's not much there. Don't worry. Uh, I mean, in an ideal world, everything would be open source, but that's a whole nother uh, viewpoint. <laughs> Good, let's get, get into it, man. <laughs> let's not get into that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, I think that that's really important, right? Because when you put things behind permission restrictions and folks aren't necessarily as aware of what, what is being done, you're, you're kind of depriving them of a certain amount of education, right? Not everyone wants to collaborate on infrastructure as code, but folks that do should have the opportunity, right? And, and with that, similar story with security, right? If security wants to modify a security group or modify, you know, what, what have you, it, the best way, rather than them just saying, hey, can you do this? The best way is almost just for them to do it and just pull request it. Because if I don't agree with it, I'll just say it in the pull request. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you say that, like, don't sugarcoat it. Just just submit your pull request. We'll get to it. We'll work it out together. Security has this really interesting feeder where... Now, security engineers are coming from a variety of different disciplines, career paths, as I'm sure DevOps does too. You have folks that were that started an operation, started an infrastructure, may not necessarily be developers or familiar with code. Now, as you get into the security industry, if, if you're going into DevOps, right, you're probably going to be writing some sort of automation as a DevOps engineer. But as an application security engineer coming in from from the cold or coming from another path uh, if, or, or an information security engineer, you may not actually touch code or be writing code or writing automation. So for, for security engineers like that, that are coming in, that are maybe not confident at all to even get to the point of a pull request because they know Jameson Colburn is going to come down and not sugarcoat anything. <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you approach that or how do you, for someone that is just looking for some aid before they get to a pull request, what is the path for that? Are there some materials that you would recommend reading? Uh, you know, are, are, or do internally even, do people come up to you or how, how do you cultivate that sort of relationship if they're not submitting the pull requests? I mean, fundamentally, I would, I would say the purpose of pull requests is to be honest, but it's supposed to be constructive criticism. I, I'm never going to comment. <laughs> you have no idea what you're doing, right? Like, if, if it's that, uh, there's maybe a nicer way. And I, I think that's, it's a little bit of awareness, right? If you know that somebody has never in Ansible before and you're just like, sorry, try again. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that's probably not the nicest way to approach that. But you can say, hey, what about this? Like, I, I think that I, it's important to, it's important to tell people what they did wrong um, or how they can, but more importantly, how, what, how they can improve it. Right. Just fundamentally saying this is wrong is probably not a great way to approach that. But I, right. I, I mean, as far as there's a lot of material out there, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of opportunities. I, I'd say internally, like folks message me on Slack and are like, Hey, how would you do this in Ansible? I'll scaffold something, send it back to them. And, and there's a lot of a learn by example things here, right? Where you can look at what other folks have done 
and kind of just repurpose that or modify that to do whatever you need. But I think it's important to start with an objective to, to say, this is what I want to do, and then try to write whatever that is, Python, Ansible, Terraform, CloudFormation, or I mean, even Perl. <laughs> so <laughs> you I, got I think, to it before I did that time. Yeah, I got to gotta save that one off now. But I, I think it's important that, you know, you kind of come up with that, uh, the, this is what I want to do. I want to do X. I want to make a security group that whitelist port 22 to not the world and, and, and create that and then pull requested or something to that effect. I mean, I grew up taking apart electronics to learn how they work and putting them back together, hoping that they still worked. And so with that, my mentality for learning anything is very hands-on. And, and so I, my, my approach to things might be a little bit more skewed, but I think that that's kind of important is that rather than having someone just tell you how it's done, really taking the time to, to learn and put things together yourself. And and not to say that you can't ask somebody, Hey, how is this done? Right. That's important. But I think as far as that learning and like cementing that into your brain, it's important that you do, you do something and kind of do that learn by example or, or learn, you know, frankly, build something from scratch. But uh, that's, it may be a slightly biased approach, but definitely has, I've seen a lot of success with that kind of approach. You know, a lot of these tools are really easy to learn. I think it's one of those things, it's easy to learn, but hard to master. So if you spend years writing Terraform, obviously you might do things a little bit neater, a little bit uh, struggle to say better, because uh, there's there's not always a best <laughs> way to do things in Terraform um, or really any of these uh, tools. But it's one of those things that it's, there's a lot you learn with experience, but at the same time, it's really easy to get started. Got it. Yeah, you know, you you made you mentioned the taking electronics apart, putting them back together again. I I had a similar background. I you know that's how I learned to build my first computer was taking it apart and putting it back together again. Maybe the differentiator between whether you're going into security or whether you're going to go into DevOps or or operations is whether or not you put it back together. <laughs> I mean, I could I could definitely see that. Uh, I I, de- I definitely remember. I, I mean, I still take things apart and end up with more screws than I started. Uh, I don't I, I don't know where they come from. Uh, but as long as the thing still works, I, I check it off as a win. But I, <laughs> well, that's what happens when they make an update in the middle of putting it back together. Yes. <laughs> but uh, but what my, I guess my point there was. Um, you know, we come from similar walks of life in terms of trying to figure out things in the security industry, in the DevOps engine industry, and in the engineering industry, in the technology world. And so you know, a lot of us think the same way or think similar ways. So what I will say, you know, from my perspective, you've mentioned, you know, submit a pull request or or you know, somebody can come to you for help or you can provide them, you have a little con context of where they're coming from and how they're approaching a problem. My suggestion to security engineers is pick up some of the skills that your DevOps team or your developers are using and use them to learn. Uh, You can learn from anyone, whether they're a peer, senior to you, below you, uh, in the corporate hierarchy. You can learn from anyone. And I think just don't be afraid to ask for help, no matter who that comes from, somebody's going to have some expertise and things that you don't necessarily have expertise in. And then if you don't want to submit a pull request and you're just fudging around with 
Terraform or fudging around with Ansible. And I still lean on Jameson for some of these things, even in like a home lab or whatever with, with Ansible is just, you know, I did it this way. How would, how would you do it? Or, or how would you improve this is the best way to learn because you're, you'll, you'll be able to sort of get your head into the game, figure out like a really simple way to do it and then lean on an expert to just level up uh, where you want to go with, with something like that. And through that, you're learning automation. And then you're able to take that knowledge and apply it to the security deployments that you're trying to do. And while it might not be perfect, you can take, you know, whatever your deployment script is or whatever your Ansible playbook is, hand it off to someone like Jameson and say, hey, you know, I put this together. You can use it as is, but, you know, you probably want to edit some of that uh, as you deploy it. Um, and then eventually, you know, you're working in sync, you're able to submit the pull request and work in that and that process. But a lot of that stuff can be bootstraps behind the scenes, just working with one another, you know, at a round table or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree with all that. I, I mean, I do have one question for you, though, Ken, as far as learning something new in your home lab, what is what is generally your approach for that? <laughs> Deploy it. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I think uh, anytime there's a new technology, I, I think a home lab is important, even if that's inside of AWS or or Azure or whatever. A lot of times what I'll do is take something like an abstracted service like EKS. Like right now I'm I'm digging into OpenShift because and yes, you can go and and sort of use MiniShift or MiniCube for Kubernetes. But I think I'm like purposefully trying to make it hard on myself because you're not going to deploy like MiniCube in a production environment, so it it gets you familiar with it in the same way that, you know, your first Ansible playbook's going to get you familiar with it. But unless you're like deploying on some of these real world scenarios, it's it becomes difficult to translate a lot of that, especially when you get into the low level stuff or networking or persistent volumes or storage. You know, it's like those things just don't really come up in these isolated lab environments. And I believe in that real world lab. I think it's also becoming a lot easier at with things like EKS or these these hosted um, abstracted services. I know I'm talking a lot about like container orchestration right now, but with anything, <laughs> uh, it's it, it, it's becoming easier to approach that because those things are used in production environments. It's not necessarily that you have to really know the ins and outs of how EKS is built if your organization is is pushing on that. And a lot of folks will rely on these abstracted services be, so that they don't have to manage a lot of those things. I just like to break it down and understand because I I just, you know, like you said, I like taking things apart and maybe not putting them back together. I have <laughs> I have like rebuilt that server a couple of times um just because I couldn't get it back together. So, but I I'm I'm good at, you know, breaking it and recovering it at this point. That's the important part. As long as you can recover it, that's Yeah. Yeah, and it teaches you things about you know backup strategy, uh, <laughs> you know, um, knowing like seeing things break or understanding it, as those things run, they go through. You know, you have your own patch cycle for a lot of that stuff, and um, it's just it, it it gives you like a little bit of a taste for maybe some enterprise services that you might not be using in your current engagement or your current organization. 
And anything that you want to experiment with, you have like a really easy way to say, oh, I want to, I want to go mess with that. Um, I'll just go and, and like I said, I just deploy it. If there's anything that we're using, you know, for a client or whatever, if, I, if I'm looking for a weakness in a technology that I haven't necessarily used before, it's much more approachable for me to do that in my home lab, go deploy it and mess with it than it is to, you know, do it on a client site or try to pay for it in AWS. It's, you know, I just, like I said, I just deploy it and, and go from there. Yeah. And I think, I think it's interesting that things like infrastructure as code have actually made this a lot more uh, achievable since even if you don't necessarily understand something, you can go on GitHub, you can find, you know, Terraform or CloudFormation that somebody else has written on, you know, how to stand this up. And you can start to pick that apart and, and start to understand these things. So even if you don't have a, a traditional, call it traditional, I guess, home lab where it's physically sitting, you know, on the other side of the room from you making some fan noise in the background, it you can still use AWS, GCP to spin up these resources for things like Kubernetes, even if you're not using EKS or whatever technology you, you, ha you have uh, to, to understand that. And so you don't have to know everything from day one, but you know, similar to mention, you mentioned with Minikube, uh, it's a great way to get a Kubernetes cluster so you can start to understand the Kubernetes concepts and then you can go forth and deploy Kubernetes yourself. I took a similar approach many years ago with OpenStack. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it at this point, but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but with using uh, DevStack to, to understand this is all the components of it and then building it out myself. But. Right. Yeah. And that's that's where I'm at with the, with, with the home lab stuff. I think that it's just like with anything, just dive into it. And the home lab for me makes it easy, but it's, I'm almost making it hard on myself. I just like the hardware aspect of it as well. I'm just like a bit of a nerd on the hardware side. So I like that. But really, you can do this for probably a lot cheaper in things like AWS uh, or you know GCP or Azure or you know whatever cloud you, you prefer. And you can learn those things like you're talking about, Ansible, and you have these providers that you can use and and start to experiment with automation and even some of the security tooling right out of the box without having to spin anything up and uh, all, it, all it needs is your your uh, access keys <laughs> <laughs> and just don't commit them to github yeah exactly uh, it should be good um yeah i mean and that's important right so the, a number of years ago i was working on a contract it was actually working on a grant and it was around hpc and historically, HPC, like high-performance computing, is not an easy field to get a lot of experience in. Uh, there's a, a big barrier to entry for hardware there. And the actual, the, the grant itself was migrating them to AWS because they had this large multi-million dollar computing environment that they didn't want to do a capital refresh on. And, and so in a matter of a couple of weeks, I was able to spin up and spin down these large clusters for running uh, models and, and able to understand how that, you know, node to node communication works, how distributed file systems uh, using Intel Luster at the time, which is now an AWS service called, I think, FSX, uh, which is even more mind boggling that that's been abstracted. <laughs> but <laughs> it was one of those things where it's something that historically I would have had to have my own data center to, to run. I could spin up and spin down and, you know, and only pay for an hour, two hours of it running. So it's, it's definitely the cloud providers have changed the, the 
economics of, of learning new technologies a lot. And you see it a lot now with like machine learning, right? Where the hardware that you would have needed to train a model years ago, now you can spin up an EC2 instance with a GPU instance attached to it and just train yeah. the model. So Yeah. Yeah, we do that. I mean, one of the things that it changed the game for me on for like the pen testing side was the uh, the password cracking aspect of it and having those GPU instances available. Just don't forget about them because <laughs> that will run up an AWS bill real quick. So lesson learned there. Um, you need like some some contingency buzz- budget for your mistakes, I think, if you're experimenting in the cloud. Another reason for physical home lab, if you want to get one um but yeah so totally agree man like that experimentation piece is is much easier now and all these abstracted services to mess with i think it's allowing us to 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 learn new things but we're getting a bit derailed there um so i'm gonna i'm just gonna reel it back in for a second and uh and bring it back we are sort of trying to keep these things down to like 30-ish minutes and have these bite-sized chunks of what we're what we're doing so I do want to sort of wrap it up here. Um, I think we've unlocked a few topics around like how we can take this for future episodes around container orchestration, maybe digging into uh, some examples of learning automation, uh, container security, uh, even something like the, the, the mini cube, mini shift, some of the aspects of that. We talked a lot about the uh, sort of CICD pipeline and contributing to that from a security perspective. Um, Anything else you want to add? Anything you're working on right now that you want to want to um, close it out with? There's probably a few things I could plug. Uh, I don't know that I want to, but I definitely I will just say at a very high level, and maybe we can dig it into them in future episodes. There are a lot of really great open source AWS security tools right now, and I know that even from a whether that's from a linting or testing perspective for your infrastructure as code, but even just for automated response, you know, configuration management, testing your configuration. So definitely pay attention to those GitHub lists. Uh, There's a lot of great tools and a lot of great work that's being done by, uh, by people. So. Well, maybe we can start to tear into some of those tools and opinions that you have on them, especially on the security side, because that would be interesting to just get your take on on some of the tools that you like as a DevOps professional uh, so that we can try to align those two worlds, what's good, what's bad, or what you like about one versus what I like about one. That'd be kind of interesting to, to, to tear apart. Uh, also, uh, in our second episode, we'll be bringing... Uh, Simon Dolo on, who I mentioned in the beginning of the con uh, of the uh, of the contest. I don't know what I'm saying there. At the beginning of the podcast, and Simon is a developer. He's a de- um, product engineering professional, so he's going to bring sort of a completely different perspective than Jameson and I to the podcast. And then moving forward, the three of us will try to tackle all of these issues from these different perspectives. And then as it goes on, if we're still around. Uh, we'll definitely bring on more guests from more professional arenas and areas of expertise that we can that we can use. But we'll close it out there. And uh, Jameson, thanks a lot for uh, being like the first experimental person on this podcast. And I'm hoping that this really takes off. If anyone has any input to this or questions or topics you want us to address we would love to hear from you you can reach us on twitter at r2 the number two dso 
uh, on Twitter, or you can send us an email at uh, security at r2dso.com. And don't worry, Jameson, I'm getting your uh, your DevOps at r2dso.com, and I'll get Simon, a developer at r2dso.com, so we can try to maybe have different avenues to receive that information. Cool. You were saying? I was saying thank you for having me. It's definitely, it's it's been a wild ride. Hopefully we can continue to do these. And uh, yeah, that's that's all I got. All right, awesome. Thank you everyone for listening. We'll see you on episode two.